Well, good morning, church family. It's so good to see you here. For those worshiping online, we're always so appreciative of the fact that you tune in and worship with us from wherever you are. My name is Tim Park. I'm one of the pastors here. And as we get ready to open God's word, would you bow with me one more time? We want to go before the Lord. And we want to ask. We want to ask our God for much. And so, Father, we come to you right now in the midst of conflict and crisis in Ukraine. God, you are sovereign over every situation. And Father, you are close to the brokenhearted. God, you save those who are crushed in spirit. And so we come to you right now. We pray for your protection. We pray for your comfort. We pray for your intervention in Ukraine. Father, we pray for those who have been displaced. We pray for the families who have been separated from each other as they have sought safety. Father, we pray for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine. God, that they would find comfort and peace and strength in you. And God, that they would share that source of strength with others. Father, I pray for the churches and the missionaries in Ukraine. God, as they care for the needs of many at this time, would you watch over them? And God, I pray for churches all throughout the world, including ours here in Diamond Bar. God, that we would respond in a way that would bring glory to you. And now as we open your word, would you teach us to be more like Jesus? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Today we wrap up our series we also wrap up Missions Month. And I, I hope to see many of you here at 3 o'clock today. It's going to be an important time for our church to gather together and to worship together and to hear from some of our missionaries and also to pray with and for our missionaries. And so I hope to see many of you here later this afternoon at 3 o'clock. Well, this morning... As we prepare for this afternoon, we're going to wrap up our series with a message entitled, Learning to Have the Heart of Jesus. Learning to Have the Heart of Jesus. Now, whenever a certain date rolls around on the calendar, something is due. And that date is April 15. All right? So what is due on April 15? Taxes, right? You notice how whenever people say taxes, it's not like, ooh, taxes. It's like taxes. So every April 15, taxes are due. Now, I've got good news for you all. This year, we get three extra days. Woohoo! Right? Because whenever tax day falls on a holiday or the weekend, it gets pushed to the next business day. This year, there's an important day on April 15. It's a good Friday. 
And so that means that tax day is pushed back to April 18. Now, regardless of how soon you do your taxes or how late you do your taxes, let's face it, not many people like doing taxes. And the reality is far fewer people like the IRS. And not a whole lot has changed over the years because if you go back to the New Testament era, the tax collector held a very bad reputation. So I'm going to ask you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. And I want to read to you the first two verses to begin our time this morning. Luke chapter 15. I'll begin in verses 1 and 2. Follow along as I read. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Go ahead and just kind of keep your place here in Luke 15. We'll come back to this chapter a few more times. But did you notice that the tax collectors are mentioned in the same breath, the very sentence as sinners? These sinners, basically they were viewed as outcasts, mainly by the religious community. And the tax collectors were grouped in to these outcasts. And many of these tax collectors, they, they worked in this very busy seaport. They, they worked in the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. And in that region, there were a lot of ships that came in and out with all kinds of goods. Uh, speaking of ports, this past Monday, Joanne and I, along with our dog, Kingston, we hopped in the car and we spent part of our day down in San Pedro because we want to go to the famous San Pedro fish market. And so we got down there, but on our way there, as we were driving, we came across this scene, this very memorable scene. Now, did you know that the two busiest seaports, the two busiest container ports in the entire country are the port of Long Beach and the port of Los Angeles, and they sit adjacent to each other. So the port of Long Beach is the second busiest port in all of the United States, second only to the port of Los Angeles, which is in the city of San Pedro. And so these two adjoining cities house the two busiest ports in the nation. So as we're on the freeway going over the bridge that connects the port of Long Beach with the port of Los Angeles, Let me tell you, we were not prepared for the number of containers that were ready to be transported. It was a surreal scene to see an endless number of containers piled so high. Now, keep that picture in mind. If we go back to the Sea of Galilee, while the scale may not have been to the scale at Long Beach or San Pedro, The Sea of Galilee was as busy as these two ports, relatively speaking. And so because it was such a busy seaport, that town had a tax office. And a lot of tax collectors worked there. And they would just tax all the ships that came in and out. Now, if your job is to collect as much tax 
as you can, what are you going to do? You're going to overestimate the value of the goods, right? So you can collect as much tax as you can. And so that's exactly what the tax collectors did in the Sea of Galilee. So in essence, you would see the tax collectors as licensed extortionists. That's what they basically were. And that is why they were included in the group of sinners or outcasts. But this is where I think that you and I, in light of our current series, Incarnational Mission, I think this is where you and I might be well served to reevaluate how we view those whose lifestyles and values are very different from ours. You know, when all said and done, the only thing that separates the follower of Jesus Christ from someone who does not know Jesus Christ, the only difference when you lay aside everything from how we might look, what we engage in, what kinds of people we associate with, the only difference is that you and I have been saved from our spiritual bankruptcy. That's the only difference. And one of those whom Jesus saved was a tax collector named Matthew. You see, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Matthew maybe sitting in his tax office and said, follow me. And Matthew dropped everything and followed Jesus. Now, unlike Peter and Andrew, and unlike James and John, who were poor fishermen, Matthew was wealthy. I mean, he was upper class. He had everything that Peter and Andrew and James and John did not have. But the one commonality these disciples all shared with each other was the very fact that before Christ got a hold of them, they were spiritually bankrupt. I thought long and hard about this this past week. And I think it's tempting for us as believers to look at the lives of those who do not know Jesus and compare them with each other. Now, allow me to explain. We might look at one person. Let's say, for example, a neighbor down the street or maybe a fellow parent at your child's school. We might look at this person and say, oh, that person is so nice. That person is always considerate. That person always has a positive outlook on life. Oh, if that person only knew Jesus that person's life would be complete because that person is so good already. Oh, that person just knew Jesus. Oh, oh, what that person could do for Christ. We tend to think that way. We tend to think that Jesus is simply one piece of a life that's already good. But then, what if we look at the life of somebody else? And we look at the life of someone else and we say, what a shameful lifestyle. How could that person behave the way he or she does? How could that person think what he or she thinks? That person does not deserve Jesus. 
You know the last part of that statement, that person does not deserve Jesus? It's accurate. It's true. Just like the nice, considerate person who is morally upright does not deserve Jesus. Just like you and I, before Christ got a hold of our lives, did not deserve Jesus. That's why in order for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, to, uh, to be the most effective witnesses for Christ, more than anything else, I believe that we need to have the heart of Jesus. And that's, if you think about that, the, the, the heart of Jesus. Again, the title for this message is Learning to Have the Heart of Jesus. And the operative word here is learning, because the reality is it does not come naturally. I don't know about your life, but in my life, being like Jesus, it just does not come naturally to me. It's not the first thing that comes to my mind when I want to react to something that I see that does not, that does not sit well with me. You know, when Jesus called his disciples, they dropped everything to follow him. But that doesn't mean that they dropped their lifestyle and their bad habits all of a sudden. They had to learn to have the heart of Jesus. Here at our church, we often talk about the discipleship pathway. What that means is this. Everything we do as a church, all the events, functions, gatherings that we participate in, they all have one of two things, or they all uh, have one of two things in, in mind. Either they, one, get us onto the discipleship pathway, or two, help us to move further along down the discipleship pathway. And as we move further and further down the discipleship pathway, hopefully the idea is that we become more and more like Jesus. And the idea of the discipleship pathway is this. It's this teacher-learner dynamic. Teacher-learner dynamic. Now, if you've ever done an internship for a job, you know that the idea is that you learn the business, you learn the trade from an expert. And most fields have this uh, internship or apprenticeship. And throughout the course of this internship, there are different phases. And what I thought we'd do is this. I thought it would be helpful for us to look at the discipleship pathway through the eyes of an internship, if you will. And there are three phases of an internship or an apprenticeship. The first phase is this, is modeling. The first phase of any internship, any apprenticeship is modeling. And so in this phase, what happens is the expert, the teacher, just simply goes about his or her daily routine at work. And the intern just kind of follows along, tags along, and learns by observing. And so when Jesus went from town to town, the disciples, they went with him. Jesus took his disciples everywhere he went, and he did so not by accident. He did so because he wanted to intentionally model for them. And guess what? For you and for me today, Jesus continues modeling for us because every time we open up to the Gospels and we read about Jesus' life here on earth, 
God is using that to allow Christ to model for us. Got a question for you. Maybe some of you might know this answer. How many years did Jesus officially minister? In other words, what was the duration of his public ministry here on earth? How many years? Three years. That's it. Three short years was the entire span of his ministry here on earth. The Winter Olympics just concluded a week ago. There's a span of four years between each Olympic Games. And that means the athlete has four years to train. Now, of course, the athlete has been training all of his or her life. But four years between Olympic cycles. That means Jesus' entire earthly ministry lasted less than an Olympic cycle. Do you think maybe Jesus sensed the urgency of his mission? And so he modeled for his disciples wherever they went. There's another phase in this teacher-learner dynamic, and that phase is the approximating phase. So you go from modeling to approximating, and in this phase, the student or the intern begins to mimic the actions of the expert. And this is a crucial phase in any learning environment. And by the way, can I say this? The approximating phase, it's often the messiest phase in any teacher-learner dynamic. Think about how little kids learn how to cook or bake. Right? When kids are little, they watch their parents in the kitchen. They observe them, modeling for them. And then at some point, your child might say this, Can I try? And when you hear the words, can I try, a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is like, oh, you're so excited. But the other part of you is like, oh, wow, I got a lot of cleanup ahead of of me, right? Because what happens is when a kid wants to try cooking or baking, right, the kid takes the measuring cup, scoops out some flour from the bag, and half of it makes its way into the mixer, the other half onto the counter. The same goes for the sugar. And before you know it, it's like a snowstorm that has hit. But the approximating phase is a crucial phase in the teacher-learner dynamic. That's how a child grows. And then the third phase is what we call fading, the fading phase. And this is the phase where the learner begins operating in a more detailed manner while the expert starts to fade into the back. So you've got modeling, approximating, fading. Jesus modeled for his disciples and for us as he carried out his mission. And as we grow in knowledge, as we grow in wisdom, we begin to approximate. In other words, we begin to live out the knowledge in our lives. And by the way, When we start approximating, this is important to know. We don't have to have all the answers before we start approximating. The tendency for some Christians is to think this way. What if I go out and share my faith, and what if somebody asks me a question I can't answer? I don't want to be stuck. I don't want to look foolish. So to play it safe, I just won't 
go out and share my faith. But Romans 10, verse 14, reminds us of this. The Apostle Paul says, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? If we wait to get a degree in theology before we share our faith, most of us will be waiting for a long, long time. How are we doing in the approximating phase? And by the way, the great thing for the Christian is this. During the fading phase, our expert doesn't just ride into the distance. Jesus is with us in the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and who gives us the courage to share our faith. And so with that in mind, I want to go back now to Luke 15. And I want to pick up here, starting in verse 3. I'll read verses 3 through 7 as we think about this learner or this teacher-learner dynamic. Verse 3 says this, Then Jesus told them this parable, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So in this parable, something of value is lost. A sheep. Now, I don't want to presume too much here, but my guess is most of us don't own any sheep. Okay, good. Most of us don't. But dog owners can relate. If your dog has ever gotten loose, if you've ever lost your dog, it is a stressful situation. You drive around, and when you can't find your dog, what you do is you go back home and you print flyers with your dog's picture, and you post them throughout the neighborhood. And when your dog is found, I'll tell you, there's no better feeling than when your dog is found. Go on to verses 8 through 10. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost coin! In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, here's another parable of something of value that is lost. A lost silver coin. At that time, it was common for jewelry to be lost because you had dirt floors in the homes. If you've ever lost something of value, like jewelry, it can produce a lot of stress and anxiety. Some years ago, I was at a birthday party with my family. It was an outdoors birthday party. And so at one point during the party, I was playing football with some of the guys, playing catch, having a great time. And then at some point, I look at my left hand, and for whatever reason, it felt different. 
my ring somehow fell off while I was playing football. And so at that point, I'm like, stop! I said, guys, I'm missing my wedding ring. And so all at once, we all got on our hands and knees on this vast grass field, high grass. And we started combing the grass looking for my wedding ring. We couldn't find it so soon. All the women and children joined in too. So the entire party at this birthday party were on our hands and knees looking for my wedding ring. And I thought, you know what? It's lost. There's no way. And then finally, after several minutes, guess what? It was Joanne who said, I found it! The three best words a man could hear. I found it! Do you know what drove Jesus? Lost souls being found. Lost souls being found. Jesus' mission was driven by his heart for the lost. I so appreciated the Hamels' time of sharing up here a few minutes ago. I just kept hearing heart, heart for the lost. And so in our time remaining, what I'd like to do is this. I'd like to share with us three characteristics of Jesus' heart. And hopefully, as we learn of these characteristics, that we would desire those same characteristics. If we want to fulfill our mission as a church, which is to know Jesus and make him known, then it's important that we develop a heart like the heart of Jesus. And so the first characteristic of Jesus' heart is compassion. Compassion. We saw earlier in verse 2 that the religious leaders, they muttered the words, this man, referring to Jesus, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You know the very act that, the very act of Jesus eating with sinners, it speaks volumes. It speaks volumes about his compassion. The very fact that Jesus ate with who were considered outcasts by the religious community. Okay, keep in mind, it was the religious leaders who said, Jesus eats with these sinners. So the very fact that Jesus was eating with the group of people classified as sinners by the religious community, that spoke volumes. Now, we've talked about food throughout the series. When you sit down with somebody over a meal, what that implies is this. You have an open heart. When you sit with somebody over a meal, it tells them you have an open heart. You know, if you're going to rebuke somebody, if you're going to scold somebody, you don't say, hey, come on over and enjoy this great meal. No, you meet somewhere, you give them a bottle of water. That's about it. 
But the minute you invite somebody over for a meal, what that says is, my heart is open. And so the religious leaders, they grumbled because not only did Jesus talk to the so-called outcasts, he took it a huge step further and he sat and ate with them. Now, I've got a question for us to ponder. And the question is this. Why were these people who were considered outcasts so willing to sit down and eat with Jesus and listen to him? Have you ever thought about that question? Why were these people who were considered outcasts by the religious community so willing to sit down with Jesus and eat with him? It certainly wasn't because he had an easy message for them to hear. It certainly wasn't because he was compromising on sin. Oh, it's okay. Do whatever you want. It's okay. And it wasn't because he was performing all these spectacular signs and miracles. At that time in his ministry, miracles, that was not the focus of his ministry. Teaching was. So, the question remains, why would these people who were considered outcasts so eager to eat with Jesus? And I believe it's because of this one fact. That Jesus showed compassion on them. That's it. Jesus showed compassion on them. And here's the thing about compassion you cannot fake compassion. Eventually, people will see through our insincerity. You cannot fake compassion. The religious leaders were upset at Jesus because he welcomed people they despised. And what's so ironic about this is that Jesus would have welcomed the religious leaders had they come to him and not at him. He would welcome them just as equally. The word welcome, which was used by the religious leaders, the word welcome, it literally means to receive as a friend. So if Jesus was walking the earth today, I think many of us would be shocked to see who he would associate with. I think you and I would just flat out be shocked who he'd walk around with. Jesus had a heart of compassion. You know, I once read an illustration that really has stayed with me. And it's the idea of how we can understand the heart of Jesus by looking at a, an accident on the freeway. So every one of us has come across an accident on the freeway. And usually there are three groups of people at the scene. The first group is the looky-loos. 
right? The looky-loos, that's like people who just drive by and they, they cause traffic, right? Because they slow down, they just look, but they have no intention of stopping. They just drive slowly to look. The second group includes law enforcement. They arrive on the scene, they investigate the scene, they assign blame, they issue the tickets. So you have law enforcement. That's the second group. The third group includes firefighters, paramedics, and possibly good Samaritans. This group is the most welcomed group. The most welcomed group because their primary objective is not to assign blame. Their primary objective is not to issue citations. Their sole purpose is to rescue the hurting and free those who are trapped and move them to safety. Three groups. One is uninvolved. One is assigning blame. And one is rescuing the hurting. Which group are we in? Christ had a heart of compassion, and that moved him to the second characteristic, action. You move from compassion to action. Earlier, we read about lost sheep. At that time, the average size of a a herd of sheep was a hundred sheep. And so every single night, every night, without fail, the shepherd would count the sheep to make sure every one of the hundred was still there. The shepherd would never do this. The shepherd would never count 1, 2, 3, 95, 96, 97, 98. 98, that's okay. Only two missing. 98, that's a solid A, okay? Or the shepherd would never say 99. Oh, 99, only one missing tonight. Never. The shepherd would leave the 99 to go look for the one. No matter how tired the shepherd was, his compassion and his responsibility moved him to action. That's how God views the lost. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the shepherd, the lady in the house, they both acted. They didn't think, you know what? That sheep's going to show up. You know what? That coin is going to show up. Have you ever noticed, okay, in, in the world of world missions, do you ever notice, if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip, have you ever noticed, we as missionaries, we don't wait for the lost, let's say thousands of miles away, we don't wait for them to raise funds, send out letters, and then hop on a plane and come here to hear about the gospel. No, no, we go to them. We go to the lost. We act. And the third characteristic of Jesus is persistence. His compassion moved him to action, and he persisted. Many, many years ago, many years ago, I used to play a lot of golf. 
Uh, I used to play a lot of golf. I used to go to sleep at night dreaming of golf courses. And so uh, this speaks to all of you who like to golf, okay? Golfers, they know how valuable golf balls are. For one, golf balls are expensive. But more importantly, golfers, they know how valuable golf balls are because if you lose a ball on the course, what does that mean? You lose strokes. And no golfer wants to give up strokes. So if you're on the tee and you hit a, quote, fade, (laughs) and it goes way to the right, you go and you search for that ball, and you search and search and search, and then soon your playing partners, they get impatient. So they come over, and they just try to help you find it. And when one of them finds your ball, the three greatest words on the golf course are, I found it, other than, right, hole in one. But the three best words, I found it, and then the two words that come after it that you want to hear is, it's playable. What that means is you can actually play it and not lose strokes. And that's the idea here. Golfers persistently try to improve. They persistently look for their ball. For the follower of Jesus Christ, if you've been praying for somebody, or maybe you've been sharing your faith with somebody, please don't get discouraged if it's been many, many years. Because it might just take many more years. Rare is a case that somebody hears the gospel for the first time. Rare is a case, not impossible, but rare is a case where someone hears the gospel for the first time and says, you know what, I'm there, I'm going to follow Jesus. More often is a case where somebody hears the gospel and maybe next year hears the gospel again, the following year hears the gospel again, and maybe you might be the one planting, maybe you might be the one later on in the process, you just never No. The spiritually lost are too valuable to give up on. As we wrap up our time today, can I share this? This is what God's been placing on my heart, I think more than anything else, in recent, I'm going to say months, maybe the last couple of years. Probably more than anything else in my own life, Here's where God's working. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were indifferent to the lost. In fact, some of them didn't even like the fact that the lost were coming to Christ. Because these new believers threatened their traditions. They threatened their customs. And they threatened their religious biases. And so, in my own life, in the last couple years, what God's been doing is, He's been showing me over and over again what true spiritual maturity looks like. And true spiritual maturity goes so much further beyond learning about Jesus. Maturity comes when we 
not only grow in our heart, but we act upon it. And so by using these two parables, Jesus pointed out the, how flawed the religious leaders were toward the lost. The same community who would have been ecstatic over a lost sheep being found, a lost coin being found, they had no heart for the lost. And so if you're sitting there thinking right now, you know what, I admit it. Throughout the course of my day, I just don't think much about the lost. I'm busy. What I want to say is this. That God can do a work in our hearts. And as we open the Gospels, as we read about Jesus, ask God, probably more than anything else, every single day, God, give me the heart of Jesus. I think probably more than any other question or any other prayer, if we could all pray every single day, God, would you give me the heart of Jesus? And I trust that we will grow spiritually. And that's my prayer for us as we bring this series to a close. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. And God, if I ask myself that question every single day, would you give me the heart of Jesus? Uh, I trust, I'm confident that uh, I would be kinder, I'd be more compassionate, I'd certainly act upon what I know. And so I pray that for myself and for my friends here at our church, that we would learn to have the heart of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.